Today's featured guest on the Scholars Podcast is Dr. Arjuna Dibley. This podcast will explore the intersection of sustainability, law and economics. Dr. Dibley is the head of the Sustainable Finance Hub at Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne. He's a research fellow at Melbourne Law School and an honorary research associate at the University of Oxford's Smith School for Enterprise and Environment. He was a recipient of a John Monash scholarship in 2016 sponsored by Woodside. He went to Stanford University to study for a Doctor of Science and Law. With expertise in environmental law and economics, Dr. Dibley's work has been published in prestigious journals and policy reports, making him a leading voice in the field of climate law, economics and sustainable finance. And I'm thrilled to say he's here today to share his insights and expertise. Dr. Dibley or Arj, welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Great to be with you. Could you perhaps share your journey from being a corporate lawyer to becoming a leading expert in environmental law and economics? What motivated this transition? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, you know, like a lot of law students, um, I was very interested in human rights when I was a student. And um, I thought that maybe I would have a career working in sort of human rights law. Also, like many law students, realized that it would be useful after I finished my degree to get admitted as a, as a lawyer. And so I thought I'd spend a little bit of time in a commercial firm, getting my practicing certificate and so on. And was really fortunate that I spent time at a firm that had a sort of burgeoning um, environmental uh, and climate change law practice, which was somewhat unusual. I got to spend some time working in that area. And I think through that experience, um, started to realize that, uh, you know, if I was interested in social equity issues, uh, uh, that that you know climate change might be one area which which is actually going to be uh, very substantial um, and 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 it seemed at the time at least that there weren't a lot of people um, doing that much work in in the area. This was in 2012. Um, uh, that's of course really changed today. Um, and and so I you know I stayed. I ended up staying at the commercial firm for a bit longer than I had anticipated. Um, and and you know I tried to absorb and learn as much as possible from that experience. And um, working sort of in Australia, but also across the Asia Pacific region. And uh, I guess through that experience, I um, felt that. It would be useful for me to um, learn a little bit more about this this area that I'd sort of learned some skills in from practice, and 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 that's you know what led me to do further study. And as you said in your introduction, uh, I was really fortunate to be supported by the by the um, Monash scholarship to go over to Stanford and um, and in a program that was set up by someone who um, you know was really. A, a professor Tom Heller, who uh, was a lawyer and had sort of been at the cutting edge of of this field, um, um, working on the intersections of economics and um, and law uh, of climate change. So that's um, that's kind of the journey between you know finishing as an undergraduate and then and then going off and getting extra qualifications. Well, let's uh, briefly touch on 
your experience at Stanford. So you earned your doctorate there, as you mentioned, as part of the John Monash scholarships. You focused on climate change law and economics. What is that exactly? How does how does that work and what made you interested in all of that? There's two concepts there, basically. Climate change, we all kind of know about about that. Um, uh, and I, I think, you know, we've had, you, you've had on your show other scholars who practice as climate change lawyers who, who work on, you know, litigation, who, you know, work on um, suing corporations for their contribution to climate change or, or who work on creating contracts to support companies that are trying to, you know, do some positive kind of green activity out in the economy. Uh, so that's the the law side, and then on the economic side, I know you've also had guests on on the show, and there's there are people in the scholars network who who work on the economics of climate change and sustainability issues, who think about how these sustainability issues like climate change are going to create costs for the economy, um, how those costs are distributed, and 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 how to respond to to that. Law and economics of climate change really sits at the intersection of those two things, and. And there are a lot of points where uh, the way that legal systems are set up can have really big implications for the economics of climate change. So to give you an example um, of this, uh, you know, we have seen for many years a, a, a debate on uh, the need to introduce carbon pricing mechanisms across the economy. Um, um, you know, in Australia, we had, we had a bit of a foray into this. We introduced a, a law to to put a price on carbon, a carbon tax. I remember it well. I think Julia Giller does too. Yes, exactly. And, you know, there was obviously a, a lot of um, political shenanigans associated with that. Um, it was a sh relatively short-lived policy. You know, that mechanism, I think, has been one that's been really favoured by economists for for a number of years because it's, it's a very efficient way of... Um, making sure climate costs are integrated into everything that happens across the economy, um, but but as you just alluded to, you know, uh, as our experience in, in Australia demonstrates, the politics of introducing those things are is, is very complex, um, uh, and it's proven to be much more challenging than I think um, was originally intended when this idea was first developed. And so I think we're at a really interesting stage now where. We're seeing governments having to be a little bit more um, involved. They're intervening in in the um, economy in, in in different ways. So we've seen recently, for example, the U.S. government's passed um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know one, the single largest um, climate change uh, a law um, and policy intervention um, in in that country's history. Um, and um, and I think we're in this really interesting state at the moment where um, these types of uh, more direct contributions, or you know, there, there's there's um, more significant roles for for governments to intervene to help speed up the transition, and and that's the type of work that you know I, I work on, and others who work in this field of of climate and environmental law and economics look at the kind of point of intersection between markets um, and law and policy and how they affect um, uh, yeah, the, those markets. If I may be allowed to go just a little deeper on the significance of your doctoral research, can you tell us how it contributes to the understanding of the climate change problem or a potential solution to it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like all PhDs, they tend to focus on a very narrow um, sort of topic. Um, so I've given you the, the kind of high level overview of what environmental law and economics is. Of course, I sort of focused on a very small piece of that. So the small piece that I looked at was was looking at state-owned companies and how state-owned companies are contributing to the climate problem and then responding to it. So why on earth would I look at state-owned companies? Surely, you know, when we think of big emitting firms, we think of BP or Shell, these kind of big investor-owned companies. But in fact, when you look at the data, um, the some of the largest owners of fossil fuels in the world uh, and some of the largest users of those fossil fuels are not um, owned by investors, but they're actually owned by governments. Um, so, uh-huh. you know, perhaps some, some of the more well-known companies that you might have heard about are, you know, Saudi, Saudi Arabia's Aramco, which is a large oil and gas company. Uh, you might have heard about, um, you know, we're, we're in the middle of uh, international climate change negotiation happening, which has just started yesterday in Dubai. Um, um, and the United Arab, Arab Emirates has a number of these state-owned companies. Uh, these firms don't just exist overseas or, um, in Asia or in the Middle East. Uh, they're everywhere. So even in Australia, we have a number of, of state-owned firms. Some of the big electricity generators, for example, in Queensland, and then WA are by the state. In the state that I'm sitting in, in Victoria, we've just seen the emergence of a new state electricity commission, that, which is owned by the Victorian state. So the point being that when you look across the economy, there are lots of these state-owned companies, and they're in they're often in very emissions-intensive sectors. Um, and yet, when I looked around at the time of my doctoral research, the tools that we have to influence companies to go green, to change their behavior, we're really built off this assumption that that companies are private; they're investor-owned, and and so we, you know, in, we encourage mechanisms such as putting a price on carbon, like we talked about before, which we talk about, you know, sh- things that shareholders or investors can do to influence these firms. But those mechanisms um, tend not to be as effective against state-owned companies. And so my PhD work was looking at, well, what are the set of incentives that might motivate? Um, state-owned firms to change. And then I looked in detail at one subsector. So I looked at electricity generation and looked at what f- what has worked effectively um, to, to drive those green transitions amongst electricity generators. And what were the, what were the outcomes? <laughs> what, was, what was your finding? Where did it all end up, Aj? Well, so uh, as you'd expect, um, you know, companies that are owned by governments tend to be influenced um, not just by price, and um, uh, they tend to be quite influenced by the political uh, c- conditions in which they operate, and um, and so you can think of this on a um, on a scale. So um, you know, on on one dimension, you can think about firms as having different levels of oh, sorry, firms as operating within um, political contexts where governments care more or less about climate change. Some governments obviously care a lot about climate change and and green innovation and others care a lot less. And then firms also differ in in the level of control that governments have over them. So um, some state-owned companies are set up in a way where they have, um, where where they're given a lot of freedom by their their governments. Uh, The governments has a sort of 
arm's length relationship with them. Um, they, but but then there are others where the government has a lot of levers of influence. So they might appoint the board, they might appoint the CEO, they might even have direct um, sort of power to make decisions about what technologies they're investing in. So. So there's these two dimensions. There's level of control, and there's kind of there's this political interest in 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 green um, transitions. And so what you tend to find um, is that firms that change the quick quickest are firms where there are strong levers of control, and the government cares a lot about this issue, right? So so we see this um, quite clearly in the data and. Uh, a lot of the electric utilities in Europe and um, in those electric utilities, you know, they're operating in a context where the public is, is quite exercised about climate change um, and, and oftentimes um, there are stronger levers of control over these utilities. And so they tend to, they've tended to be making the green transition faster than even investor-owned firms. Um, and then the opposite is also true. So in countries that you know, have a lot of other priorities beyond climate change, um, on economic development or, or other things, um, and strong levers of control over over their companies, they tend to be the worst performers. Um, uh, and so, but then the really interesting group is the group in the middle where, where there is a bit more of a hands-off relationship. And, um, and in these cases, you know, you see some really interesting cases where where firms um, are able to make the transition um, by accessing finance through the capital markets, um, a green finance that might incentivize um, a faster shift. Um, and you also see certain firms that um, are, you know, uh, are taken in new green directions by, by particularly forward-looking CEOs and management. Um, so that's kind of the landscape. And um, uh, and it's this work has kind of led into you know I think when I started doing it a lot of people thought it was a very esoteric topic. It's now starting to come more into the mainstream because I think oh I bet it is we're, yes. we're starting to see and and it's a growing recognition that that these that these companies are actually a really big part of the problem and we need to really think carefully about um, how we incentivize them to change. So as you've worked with. Governments, financial institutions, not-for-profits on climate-related issues. Could you perhaps highlight a specific project or experience that you found particularly impactful or memorable or inspirational even? Yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, I was coming to the tail end of my PhD and like all, you know, like many of us was holed up in a room watching with horror as kind of COVID unfolded. And I was looking at the work that some of my peers were doing in, in this area of, of climate law and economics. Um, and there was a lot of folks who were out there looking at how governments were spending their money during COVID-19. Um, and there was, there was a great kind of public discussion around, you know, is, is the, all of this public um, money that's being spent on the health response, is, is, are there any kind of green effects as a consequence of that, are the governments sort of using the stimulus to promote um, decarbonization or, or green activities? You know, and that was a really interesting question, and it you know got a, got a fair bit of um, sort of public traction. Uh, but I was you know sitting there thinking about the opposite question, which was um, you know governments are 
are spending all this money, but where where are they raising that from? Um, uh, and and are they thinking about climate change in the way that they're raising raising money? So I went and had a look at all of the um, uh, the the debt instruments that were used by governments to to raise uh, funds, and and we're talking mm-hmm. trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, at unprecedented levels. What did you find? Some of these governments are raising money for for you know for decades, and in that time, we know the science is telling us that climate change is going to affect the ability of these governments to start repaying their debts. And um, so, with a colleague at the University of Oxford, with a couple of colleagues at the University of Oxford, we we looked at these bond prospectuses and we found that mostly countries didn't think about climate change at all in the way that they raised. Uh, their debts. The consequence of that may be that there is a a, a substantial unaccounted cost um, in in these in these debts that may be accounted for at a future at a future time. And that was um, you know we published that paper in, in Nature and it got quite a lot of traction and led to us working with the UN Environmental Program on what this the implications of that might mean particularly for developing countries. Um, and so I would I really enjoyed that project because it. It was a sort of piece of research that then kind of l- led to policy action and, and had quite a lot of press coverage and, and activity as a consequence. So you're now setting up an initiative at the University of Melbourne, which focuses on sustainable finance. What would you say is unique about sustainable finance and what, and what are some of the emerging trends and strategies that you see in this field that interest you the most? The um, initiative at the University of Melbourne is an attempt to, so we sit within this group called Melbourne Climate Futures, and our purpose is to try and act as a front door for um, the university to outside decision makers. So we're trying to make our research, you know, accessible to policymakers, to investors, to business, you know, um, business leaders and so on. You know, sustainable finance, I think, is an area which has garnered a lot of attention recently. Uh, because um, you know, there's there's been the, the finance sector has kind of realised that um, climate change and and biodiversity loss actually pose pretty substantial financial risks for the way that they operate, um, and that there are also really big opportunities to um, to invest in this area. What makes sustainable finance unique is that perhaps for the first time we're trying to encourage financial institutions to think about how to. Um, not only pursue their profit objectives, but also how they might have um, some sustainability impacts in addition to those. Um, and, um, and and that's no easy feat. Um, it, it requires some creative thinking, which is why um, you know there's been some interest in financial institutions working together with with unis. And some of the, you know, you asked about some of the interesting kind of developments in this area. Well, I think what we're seeing a lot more, the use of these types of instruments, which have sort of sustainability conditionality attached to them. So um, one one particular example of that is sustainability linked bonds. So these are, these are instruments that companies and countries can use to raise, um, uh, to raise money from the debt market so they they borrow money but that money usually um, has a, a condition attached to it that the company or the country has to meet certain sustainability objectives and if they meet those sustainability objectives then they get access to a lower um, interest rate 
Um, but if they fail to meet those objectives, they get penalized. So um, those types of instruments create an incentive for companies or countries to uh, to either reduce their emission or or reduce the amount of um, environmental destruction that they would ordinarily be carrying out. You've touched on the fact that the work you are currently doing is about taking the expertise from the university to decision makers in policy and industry organizations. How do you see the role of universities and research institutions evolving in the fight for a better climate? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. Um, You know, I think because historically universities have played a role in sort of sustainability issues as being the bearer of bad news, you know, um, it was it was researchers that sort of originally highlighted the problem of climate change and biodiversity loss, and um, and I think as a as a generalization, um, we, you know, we as a cohort have a tendency to be a bit bit pessimistic, painting a sort of doom and gloom picture. And I think the real challenge at the moment is um, to take the skills and expertise within the, the sort of house within the uni um, and and work with people who are trying uh, to create change um, from a slightly more optimistic perspective. Um, and, and those skills, I think, are still um, incredibly re- relevant and useful. Um, um, uh, and so, yeah, the, I think that the, the, the challenge is... Um, you know, getting getting universities that have been set up with a very um, fixed kind of structure around, you know, publication and teaching, um, trying to get researchers um, sort of out of that embedded structure into structures which will allow them to be a little bit more nimble and to work with organizations, you know, in the private sector or the public sector, um, that aren't so interested in the published paper, but might be really interested in the ideas that sit before that. So it really requires, I think, different ways of working um, and collaboration. And, and my experience has been um, there's absolutely really good models for doing that well, um, but it just it just requires a little bit of time and thought up front. Um, and I think it's a cultural change. So, you know, my experience working with, Academics has been that younger academics are really excited about this type of work, um, and it takes a little bit more effort with with those who have been steeped in the institutions for a bit longer. Speaking of uh, younger people, what advice would you give to young researchers, young professionals who aspire to make a positive impact in the field of sustainable finance and climate law? I mean, I think the thing I always say to people is that um, some of the most impactful work in this area is work that you have to really scratch below the surface on. It's it's often the boring stuff that is the most impactful. And so, you know, when I was in my 20s and was thinking about what I might do with my life, I, I didn't really think that I would sort of become an expert in state-owned companies, uh, <laughs> seemingly pretty dry, <laughs> technocratic area. But um, but I realized that precisely because it's, you know, boring or technical, um, it doesn't, these things often don't get the attention that they deserve. Um, and if you're willing to spend the time and effort to become, to develop some expertise in them, 
to you know to engage with these stakeholders that maybe haven't previously been engaged by the climate community or the sustainability community. Those are the areas where I think you know you get um, the the most bang for your buck uh, for the amount of effort that you put in. Uh, you, you've obviously had a lifetime of professional lifetime of of study and and research. What what are your personal reflections on the value of postgraduate study and continuous education? Yeah, it's a great question, Justin. I mean, I've actually um, had a career that's been in and out of university. So, you know, I I spent um, after after sort of my undergraduate degree, I spent a fair bit of time in the private sector, spent some time in sort of policy, doing policy work at a think tank, as you know, spent time at an investment firm, um, and then sort of have come back to work in unis. And I, I like, I, as, as is probably implicit in that um, journey, it's, it's been this idea that, you know, continuous education is, is really important. And I think that, um, you know, studying opportunities and working at universities offer a really unparalleled experience in um, um, developing new ideas, uh, pursuing things that maybe um, are slightly longer term in nature that require a bit more effort. Um, and I, so I'd encourage people, I think, to, um, and, you know, new scholars coming into the program uh, to really take the opportunity when you're, when you're going back to study uh, to really think about how you can use the time to focus on things that you may not be able to if you move into a, a you know, into a private or public institution that's much more focused on the short-term, for, short-term deliverables. Um, uh, it's a really unique opportunity to be able to step out of that world and um, I think you get the most out of it if you focus on sort of the longer term. Looking ahead, what do you see as the most significant challenges and opportunities in the in the coming years for those working to create a more sustainable and climate resilient world what we're seeing is that there has been a real uptick in the level of energy and effort in sustainable the sustainability areas generally recently you know we're seeing huge amounts of attention on climate change and increasing focus on nature and biodiversity loss. But still, despite that, things are tracking in the wrong direction. So global greenhouse gas emissions are still increasing. Um, and so we, we, we really haven't yet unlocked or, or um, disaggregated economic growth and emissions growth. Um, and so I think what that means is that we're pretty likely to be facing a future in the short term where we are going to see much more substantial climate impacts, so you know, more intense uh, floods and fires and, and droughts um, in this country in particular. And I think what that means is that you know one of the really big challenges that creates is that we need to be focusing a lot more on how we respond and adapt to to these big um, climate impacts at the same time as trying to restructure the economy and change our this you know dominant set of technologies and so on and so forth and i think um we haven't really you know we've we've had a few small incidences of that um where where climate impacts might um affect 
the transition, but I think we're going to see a lot more of that and we're going to need a lot more attention and, and focus on, 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 on that issue. Very well said, Dr. Arj Dibley. Wonderful insights today. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on to the show and sharing uh, your perspective on various matters. Keep up the good fight, Arj, and uh, all the best in the years ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Good to be here.